This is an ABC podcast. G'day, beloved listeners. As you know, China has slammed the door on Australian journalists, but one of them has tricked Beijing. It's Stephen McDonnell, who was the ABC's uh, voice from China, but he jumped ship to the BBC, and so he's still there. But he's popping back to the Little Wireless program to talk about uh, China's, China's multiple crises in COVID, in political matters, and in their um, in, in their foundering economy. Mike Carlton used to be an extraordinarily, shall we say, provocative columnist at the Sydney Morning Herald until he became so outrageous they decided to give him the boot. Little doesn't matter because Mike keeps himself busy by writing really interesting books on naval history. The fourth in line is going to be reviewed tonight on the little program. It's called The Scrap Iron Flotilla, Five Valiant Destroyers and the Australian War in the Mediterranean. Now, as you know, Ian Dunt has uh, faked his own death and disappeared entirely, but uh, we're not worried because once again we're joined by Naomi Smith. Naomi is the uh, chief executive of Best for Britain, which uh, describes itself as the UK's leading cross-party advocacy group, upholding international values. And she's also one of Ian's regular co-hosts on the uh, Oh God, What Now podcast. Naomi, thanks for coming back. The Tory leadership race continues. Bring us up to speed. Well, it's wonderful to be back, Philip. Thank you very much for having me back on. And uh, uh, I'll do my best to to, uh, step into Ian's shoes yet again and give you the headlines. Since I was last on the show, there have been some developments, um, mostly that the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, does now appear to be nailed on to replace Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. And that is, to some extent, surprising, given that the former Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, started the race as the runaway favourite and even, well, if rumours are to be believed, have schemed to ensure that it was Truss that he would be facing in the final. Um, And in terms of what's happened over the last few weeks. They've both had um, some difficulties. Uh, Truss herself had a car crash policy announcement last week where she thought uh, a cost of living crisis was the right time to announce a salary cut for teachers, police and nurses (laughs) and got her son... Boy, can she read a room. (laughs) Indeed. I mean, and and it was focused on uh, those sort of outside the southeast of uh, the UK, which tends to to be a wealthier part of the country. Um, so hitting hitting uh, lower paid public sector workers most. Uh, and then there was a video um, of Sunak that emerged where he was boasting about removing money from deprived urban areas and came under huge criticism for that. Um, so really, what's been happening is that. Both of them have been pandering ever more to the court of small and unrepresentative Conservative Party members. Um, And the danger, of course, therefore, is that they are alienating the public. Uh, And when they come to face them at a general election, rather than the electorate of this uh, race, they're going to have a much tougher time because the, the stuff they've been saying is not proving popular with the ordinary Brit. I, I barely understand the mechanics of the electoral college in the US and <laughs> don't begin to understand this sort of electoral college <laughs> voting on on the PM. Who gets to vote? So right now it is only the people who are currently members of the Conservative Party. Um, they don't always release the figures about how many members they have, but it's probably in the ballpark of... 200,000 people in a country of 60 million. Uh, so it's a very, very, very small um, for the new Conservative leader. And because of the way our parliamentary system works, they will therefore also be Prime Minister 
up until the next general election, where they may win and stay on or or be ousted. Naomi, um, has has yeah. Boris given a wink and a nod to either? Well, he's certainly no fan. He's signing shortly after the health. We're having a little bit of a problem, uh, Naomi. You're breaking up. Can you? Oh, sorry. Can you uh, yeah. put some more money I in mean, the slot? Thank you. Uh, can you? Can you hear me now? Is That's that better. better. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so Johnson certainly is no fan of Rishi Sunak, who he sees as a traitor. Uh, Sunak uh, resigned shortly after the health secretary Sajid Javid resigned. So sees him very much as uh, one of the precipitators for his own downfall. But really, he's been biding his time probably to do some kind of Trumpian style comeback uh, as and when he feels that the appetite is is there for him to do that. Um, he's been pretty much missing in action, though, ever since he resigned. Um, he, he, of course, famously resigned saying, I'm resigning as Conservative leader, but I will stay on as caretaker prime minister and said, I want you to know that from now until my successor is in place, your interests will be served and the government of the country will be carried on. And I'm afraid to say that's not true. He's gone and had his wedding um, party because he officially got married last year, but had the party this year. He's been on holiday. And I cannot begin to tell your listeners how dire things are in the UK at the moment in terms of the cost of living crisis. So staying staying in a five-star hotel is not a good look. It, it really isn't, and it's sort of all for, you know, part of the course with him. Uh, last year, uh, he enjoyed a week-long stay in a property in the south of Spain funded by the Goldsmith family. Uh, these are, you know, a very, very wealthy family. Zach Goldsmith was booted out as a MP for a southwest London constituency. Johnson rewarded him with a lifelong seat in the House of Lords, just as he did for Evgeny Lebedev, son of ex uh, KGB agent Alexander Lebedev, whom he has also enjoyed the entertainment of and partied with in Italy. You take the breath away, I have to say, Naomi. This is this is great fun and terrible at the same time. Now, you mentioned uh, that both leadership candidates were polling behind uh, the Labour leader, uh, Starmer. Is that still mm. the case? Yes, I mean, polls fluctuate, of course, um, and there was some narrowing last week because Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, uh, came under some criticism for not backing striking workers. Um, there is a lot of industrial action being announced across the UK at the moment as people are demanding higher wages to keep up with inflation. We've had railway workers, comms workers, postal workers, all confirmed for strikes and nurses are being balloted next month. And Starmer sacked a member of his shadow cabinet for attending one of those picket lines. And so there's been some disquiet there. So certainly Labour and, and Starmer can't take it for granted that they will win um, the next general election, whenever that is. Uh, it will be at some point within the next two and a half years. Um, but certainly on the poll of polls, Labour do seem to be ahead of the Conservatives. Now, because we're not as fortunate as Australia in having a proportionate voting system, we just have a first-past-the-post one, you can be ahead in the national polls, but when you apply that to each constituency, actually you can still get a minority Conservative government on a majority of the votes. Sorry, the other way around. You can get a majority Conservative government on a minority of the votes. What about uh, proportional representation getting a, a toehold in the UK? Well, at Best of Britain, we spend an awful lot of time lobbying for it. There is going to be um, uh, a Labour Party conference in late September, and we're very hopeful that at that conference, Labour Party delegates will vote in favour of proportional representation. That was the case last year, that the over 80% of the voting members backed it, because they would rather that Labour shared power and were in power most of the time than didn't share any power and were in opposition most of the time, which is uh, what has been the case in the 20th and 21st centuries so far. So we're 
we're hopeful that it will get through this time. The reason it didn't, despite that 80% of members backing it last time, is because the unions blocked it. Now, since then, several of the huge affiliated trade unions to the Labour Party have actually uh, passed their own policy motions against first past the post and in favour of PR. So, fingers crossed and all eyes on what happens at that Labour Party conference in late September. Well, because it would, of course, open the door to Labour, the Lib Dems and the Greens working together. Indeed, indeed. And the Lib Dems, the Greens and Plaid Cymru, which is the Welsh Nationalist Party, worked together at the last election and stood aside for each other uh, to, to, you know, to help not fracture votes across the progressive left. Um, and it would be absolutely superb if Labour wanted to join in that kind of an alliance next time round. I think it's unlikely that they will, but they hopefully will do what they seem to be happy to do in the by-elections that we've had since the last election and enter so-called non-aggression pacts with the Liberal Democrats um, and, and not spending money and putting up too much of a fight in seats where the Lib Dems are better placed to beat the incumbent Conservative. When I was introducing the programme, I talked about our next story with an old colleague of ours who's uh, still managing to report from Beijing and we'll be discussing the overlapping crises that uh, you know that Beijing is facing with its attempts to eradicate covid and to prop up a, a totally collapsing real estate industry whilst at the same time dealing with a few problems with uh, Pelosi in Taiwan uh, the the UK has almost as many problems is there any way out of them could an enlightened government actually fix things Yes. I mean, they certainly uh, could do a hell of a lot more than this so-called zombie government is doing at the moment where Johnson, Truss uh, and, and others are sort of refusing to come together, recall Parliament and put through some emergency measures to help people in the uh, acute situation that we find ourselves in now. But a new government certainly would be able to do uh, far more than this very ideologically driven um, uh, libertarian influence government is able to do at the moment. The really obvious one is to start to improve geopolitical relationships, most notably with Brussels and Europe, repair a lot of the damage that has been done there over the course of uh, Brexit premiership in number 10 over the last few years, um, to soothe a lot of the problems that British businesses have in importing and exporting to and from Europe. That is crippling a lot of smaller businesses, putting some of them out of business, making uh, investment in the UK unviable and having to shift operations elsewhere. So that is certainly something that a new government would be able to do that, that the Conservative government couldn't credibly do. And of course, that also helps uh, tensions with um, the USA because the USA, with a huge Irish lobby there, are very committed to upholding the Good Friday Agreement and peace on the island of Ireland. And they really do not like what this current Conservative government has been doing over the Northern Ireland Protocol. So there's, there's lots that a new government could do, but of course we would love it if they would also do a big range of constitutional reforms, uh, not least changing our you know, completely corrupt voting system that structurally favours the right. Naomi, after years of uh, climate change denialism, we've got a new government who's finally doing something about it with the help, incidentally, of... Uh, of people like the Greens. Now, you've got a huge drought going over there. Is climate change yeah. on the agenda? Is it being discussed? All I can tell you is that we are not prepared for this in the way that you guys are. We hit 42 degrees for the first time uh, that Celsius um, uh, a few weeks ago. It's climbing back up to the mid-30s and our buildings don't have air conditioning. We are we are not um, equipped to cope with this at all. Um, the grass across most of the, the south of the UK is completely yellow. It looks like autumn already here because the, the, the leaves are on the ground because they've burnt and they, they've fallen off. Um, um, and today the farmers union has said the drought is impacting livestock grazing and well, is going to hit next year's crops so food prices are going to go up even more than they already are and of course it's all a result of climate change but both of the front runners to be prime minister um, have recommended removing green policies in their desperation to win the support of the Tory party members we spoke about earlier thanks for coming on you better go off and water your plant and uh, I'll talk to you again soon we've been talking to uh, the splendid Naomi Smith, Chief Exec of Best for Britain. And this is Ellie Nell on RN.
scene is the uh, press club in Canberra, and history is made when Helen Chena, journalist from SBS, asks the Chinese ambassador a question in Mandarin. She asks about uh, lifting tariffs and freeing Australian journalist Cheng Lei. Now, the ambassador gives no direct or meaningful response to either question, but as the Australian media no longer has representation in China, it was something. One correspondent who was still working in China, he's been there about 17 years, I think, at last count, is Stephen McDonnell. Stephen is the China correspondent for the BBC, but was, of course, the China correspondent for the ABC and was enormously helpful to the Little Wireless program when we were allowed to visit. And it's wonderful to welcome him back to the program in good working order, where, of course, a great many Chinese are not. Tell me about the COVID crisis and how it's playing out. Well, uh, zero COVID as we would call the strategy of attacking the problem here, dominates life in China. It, it you know, is something you have to consider when thinking, might you travel to another city? Might you be going to a restaurant? Might you be playing sport? For example, in Beijing, I mean, every city has its own rules, uh, to tell the truth, and Beijing has the rules applied pretty strictly. Well, here we have to do a PCR test every three days, even though there are zero cases in the city at the moment. So that's tens of millions of people. And what that practically means is if you haven't done one of those tests every three days, you can't go into buildings. So even like a corner shop, if I wanted to go into a little 7-Eleven style corner shop and buy a rice paper roll or an orange juice or something or other, apart from having to show that you're health code is green, it also has to show that you've done a PCR test within the last three days. And it comes up with a big number from zero, one, two or three. If, you've, if you're up to four, you can't go into the shop. So like I said, there's no getting away from zero COVID in China at the moment. And, and I suppose I should explain for those who don't know what the zero COVID approach is, it basically means that every outbreak has to be squashed uh, no matter what it takes, uh, back to zero. So a city can be locked down at the drop of a hat. Only a few cases can precipitate millions of people being confined to their homes. And at its worst, it's meant somewhere like Shanghai, 25 million people confined to their homes for months on end, which also happens to be trashing the economy. So it's a huge challenge for the government. And, you know, something that I don't know, at some point they're going to have to find an off-ramp for. But if they have a way out, they haven't shared it with us yet. And, of course, uh, masks are mandated? Yes. Yeah, I mean, not not walking down the street, although in Beijing a lot of people do still wear them in the street. But, yeah, if you go to go into a shop and you haven't got a mask on, someone will indicate to put put your mask on or... Uh, obviously not in restaurants because you've got to take it off to eat or, or a bar to have to have a drink, but anywhere else, a shopping centre, the place you work, a school, university, you should have a mask on. Stephen, any sign of, of the odd foreign tourist? No, no foreign tourists here for years now. They're not issuing visas. The only foreigners that can come into China at the moment have got uh, business visas, or you can get a sort of family reunion visa. Now, it's interesting. I've, I've just been out filming in various parts of the country for a, a little documentary we're making on zero COVID and its challenges. And one of the people we spoke to, I mean, people who catch up with BBC World will see this in a few weeks. So I'm giving you a little uh, heads up of what will be on it. But we found like people who work in the, the tourist industry who's uh, you know, well, their, their businesses have collapsed, especially if they rely on foreign tourists. Uh, so places like Xi'an, for example, they're getting zero foreign tourists and, and it's meant whole businesses have just been had to you know, be paused. Uh, funnily enough, though, you know, the, the, there are different impacts all over the country and 
it's it's not all bad news in that we we also did a story about surfing in Hainan, which has gone through a bit of a boom as a result of zero COVID because people, you know, youngsters would be backpacking around Thailand or going to Australia or somewhere like that are instead restricted to China. And so, yeah, they're going down to Hainan Island to learn surfing and there's this absolutely booming surfing scene going on in Hainan Island at the moment. It's <laughs> now, not Stephen, all dark, really. Am, am I right that you snuck into Australia and back again? I did. It, it got to the point where I had to go. I hadn't left here for three years. And, I mean, it's not that I wasn't allowed to leave. It's just that for, for foreigners or for anyone, if you wanted to go, say, from China to Australia and back, you can't get flights, and even if you could get a seat on a plane, it costs a gazillion times the normal price. And then when you return, you still have to do quarantine. So I did two weeks hotel quarantine. That's now been reduced to uh, seven days hotel quarantine plus three days of quarantine at home if, if you fly into the city you live in. So it's a bit of a problem still if you want to travel. Now, Stephen, is there agreement in the upper echelons of the party, that this is a good policy? Well, this is a very interesting question. I mean, you'd love to be a fly on the wall when the Politburo Standing Committee is meeting, but we did have a bit of an indication of this recently when they had had a gathering, and so this is the seven people at the top of the pile here, and they give us just a sort of highlights dot points of what they discussed, uh, release. And one of the points was urging the cadres to stay the course and telling people that zero COVID is the way forward. And not only should they themselves be doing this, but they should be uh, cracking down on anyone else who's doubting and who's, you know, in fact, or who's sowing the seeds of doubt in, in, in the questioning the appropriateness of zero COVID. Now, you think about it, why would they put that in the release of their, you know, the the dot points of what they they talked about? It's got to be because there has been such questioning. There must have been people, and it would make sense, who are going to the Xi Jinping and saying, we can't hold the line on this forever. I mean, GDP in, in the latest figures has absolutely collapsed. If you lock down Shanghai for two months, that's the country's financial capital, of course, it's going to have an impact. I mean, I know someone who runs a factory here who said they're losing business overseas because like, their um, customers don't trust anymore that Chinese factories can supply them. And that's because at any stage it could all be locked down. And of course, that's impacting on the uh, on the building and the construction industry in China with, uh, well, workers can't get to the sites, I guess, and building materials must be, must be hard to uh, acquire. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all, um, all manner of industries are being impacted by this. I mean, I'll Come to the, the building uh, specifics of the, the of the property market and, and building in a moment. But I mean, before that, uh, like any like anything that you can think of, which you used to be able to get in an instant in China, well, it can't be necessarily delivered so quickly. And this is a an online economy here. People are so used to just punching in an order, and next thing a tracksuit will turn up at their front door in a couple of days' time. Well, it's not happening like that anymore. I mean, I went into an Irish pub in Beijing, which had no Guinness. And Heavens I above. Myself, what do you mean? Yeah, so what, what do you mean you've got, no, you got no Guinness? The pub with no beer. Well, the reason, <laughs> the pub with no beer. Well, the reason is because it all, was all coming in through Shanghai at the time. Shanghai was locked down. The, 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 there it was, no doubt, the Guinness was sitting in barrels on a... <laughs> on a wharf somewhere in Guinness and not being poured into the glasses in Beijing. But, now, yes, it, it does affect everywhere. Now, Stephen, given that 30% of the GDP is property and construction, the crisis must be immeasurable. 
Sure. So people are actually really worried about this and at its worst they're fearing a sort of Lehman Brothers style property collapse here. And in a way the problem is similar but, you know, in the way it's different to the US. But to cut a long story short, these developers have been going way into debt, building things that are way beyond their means and then when it looks like they're going to be in trouble and they can't keep up with the, the demand for all the stuff that they said they were going to build, well, they're going further into debt again, which is worsening the crisis. Now, what this has meant is that everywhere from, you know, the, the, the senior members of the party worried about how the economy is going to keep going if, if the property sector collapses, right down to average people who've bought properties which haven't been delivered and have now, like as, as we discovered, we interviewed some people a couple of days ago who just decided, look, we can't not move into these flats we've paid for, even though they're not finished. And so they're going into these kind of shells of towers and sleeping on concrete floors. There's no running water. There's no electricity. And hoping that at some point they're flats get finished. That's a new form of squatting, isn't it? That's surreal. Yeah, it's like, it's like you're squatting in your own place. You're squatting in a place you've bought off the plans but which has never been finished. Uh, and, you know, it, it, this is going on all over the country. Well, I mean, look, okay, now that's, that's a sort of passive resistance, but I understand that people are also daring to protest. That doesn't go too well, down too well in China. Yeah, I, absolutely. They've been protesting not only in the streets in a sort of yeah, pushing and shoving with the cops type fashion of protest, but they've also been protesting by not paying their mortgages. So they've said, all right, we've not had that flat delivered. Well, I'm going to stop paying my mortgage. Now, the bank might say to them, well, it's not our problem. We, we lent you some money and not, it's not, <laughs> you know, you've got to keep paying. Well, the, the, the property owners have said, well, Actually, we think it is your problem. We think it's the government's problem. And so as a form of resistance, they've stopped paying their mortgages to try and pressure the government. And so it's going on in all these different levels. You can imagine so some people squatting in their unfinished flats, others not paying their mortgages, and others uh, just like, marching through the streets in a kind of uh, traditional form of protest demanding you know, that they you know what they were promised be delivered but you know as you know it, well it, it certainly uh, focused the minds of government here because they're trying to get the developers to finish these places but it's not working i mean the, the people we we went and interviewed in this flat this like we're, we're there we're doing these interviews with people and they're talking about their lives the police come, as happens here, and you know, kick us out, and so do some people from the, the developer. Uh, a few days later, the local government holds a meeting with those property owners and the developer and, and essentially orders that work resume. Well, it hasn't resumed yet. I mean, I've spoke to them again today. No trucks have turned up out the front to get it all going. Well, if that has focused the government's attention, so, of course, did uh, Nancy Pelosi's... Uh, visit to Taiwan last week. Did you expect her to land and did you anticipate the response if she did? Well, I thought she, in the end, kind of had to go because what was she going to do? Back down and be sort of bullied into not turning up. Once it had been leaked that she was planning to travel there, she kind of had to go. If it had all been done behind closed doors, I suppose there was a way out. So I expect that she would go. In terms of China's response, uh, I, partly I, I thought, you know, we got what we thought we would get, but it was more than I suppose most of us expected in terms of the military response and certainly more in terms of these other kind of um, sidebar punishments that they've issued. So, for example, I don't know if people have noticed in all the discussion about the, the military exercises, but Beijing has also said to Washington, no more high-level military dialogue, no more cross-border crime cooperation, including narcotics, no more maritime 
maritime safety cooperation and, crucially, no more climate change cooperation. So there we have the world's two largest carbon emitters now not talking to one another about any joint measures on climate change because of this visit. And there must be some people in Washington who are wondering, you know, has this all been worth it, really? You've got Taiwan now less secure than it was. All these areas where we were able to cooperate with China now gone. And on top of that, we've got the hardliners in the Communist Party who have now normalised a new level of militaristic response, including firing missiles over Taiwanese territory, which they'll probably do every year from now on. Now, you are one of the very few Western journalists still in the, in China. Australia's uh, Bill Bertels was forced to leave. We know of all sorts of other outcomes. How difficult is it to keep reporting, talking like you are on this little program, without risking losing that visa? Well, um, <laughs> I'm still here. I mean, there have been all sorts of reasons why journalists from various countries have been kicked out or haven't been able to get back in again. It, it, everything from relations that certain countries have with Beijing, like the US and Australia, or, or down to, um, uh, well, they, they used COVID as an excuse for many countries. It, the the Indians are finding it hard to get back in here. Uh, but in terms of those who are operating inside China, it's certainly not getting any easier. I mean, it's always been hard to operate in China. There's no doubt about that. But it's like everywhere we go, especially outside of Beijing, as soon as you check into a hotel, well, we're going to be followed. Uh, anywhere we go that's... Um, even uh, doesn't even have to be sensitive. You know, if we just turned up to do a story about pandas somewhere, <laughs> well, they, they'd be there hassling us about it, you know. Um, it wouldn't matter. It's I, I, I sympathise with the authorities. I wouldn't let you near, near my pandas. I've been talking to Stephen McDonnell, uh, Chinese correspondent for The Beeb and former correspondent for Auntie, talking about... Uh, journalists getting kicked out. You might recall that Mike Carlton was kicked out of the Sydney Morning Herald for being a naughty columnist. Well, he's now on the program, on the Little Wildest program, telling us about the Scrap Iron Flotilla. For the time being, let's forget AUKUS and nuclear subs and take our minds back to World War II. When it broke out in 1939, uh, Britain asked Australia for ships. They were sent five old destroyers which had been put out to pasture. World War I era vessels, quickly brought out of retirement, patched up and sent to beef up the British Royal Navy in the Mediterranean. Nazi propaganda minister Goebbels called them scrap iron, so the sailors proudly uh, dubbed themselves the scrap iron flotilla. And they would go on to rescue Aussie troops from Greece, supply the famous rats of Trabuk, and yes, hunt enemy submarines. Mike Carlton has penned a new book called The Scrap Iron Flotilla, published by Penguin Random House. And joins me now, Mike, first of all, this is your fourth book on naval history. What is it with you and torpedoes? Is it <laughs> phallic symbolism? <laughs> Save yourself. Um, no, I wanted to join the Navy when I was a kid. I read The Cruel Sea under the blankets at the age of 11, Nicholas Montserrat's stirring novel of the war in the Atlantic. And from that moment, I wanted to sink destroyers, you know, from a, a rain-swept, <laughs> spray-swept bridge, a sink-sink submarine, I mean. And uh, the feeling never really left me. In the end, stupidly, I ended up in journalism, but I'd like to have joined the Navy. I saw the film version of that epic. It didn't yep. have the same effect on me. Anyway, tell us about these five old war horses, old but dangerous. Well, they were, as you say, First World War vintage, and in a sane world, they would have been, um, would have gone to scrap by, by 1939. 
But uh, they were pretty much all we had in the Navy. We had some cruisers as well, but these were the destroyers. Uh, the crews used to joke that they were held together by chewing gum and bits of string and that they were so old that you could actually spin the rivets holding the hull plates together. You could spin them with your finger. Uh, the machinery was old and needed immensely careful tending, but they were still well-built ships. They were tough and they were, they were able. And so off they went to the Mediterranean, where there's nothing much happening in 1939. The big, the big battle at sea was in the Atlantic, where the U-boats were attacking British supply lines. So there wasn't much happening in 39. The French were still in the war. The Italians were not. They didn't come in until uh, 1940. So it was pretty quiet to start with, but it certainly he- heated up when the Italians got into the war and the French got out. So the old war horses had quite sizable guns and anti-aircraft and lots of torpedo tubes. They had lots of torpedo tubes, and they had they had good um, good main armament, as they call them, the big guns fore and aft. The anti-aircraft armament was pathetic. It was still um, it was of nineteen fourteen vintage, which was okay for shooting at uh, at biplanes, you know, string bag biplanes that would come at you at ninety miles an hour. But it was hopeless when it was, you had, they had to deal with the, the Stuka dive bombers of the Luftwaffe. It couldn't hit a, uh, it couldn't hit anything. But uh, and there, were, there was a lot of trouble over that until until they captured some Italian guns and put them on board, and they were much much better. I understand they also had uh, quite an array of depth charges, which are very useful within enemy subs. Yeah, they had depth charges on the back, on the stern, and they, they would roll those over and so. And they sank a few submarines, quite a few. Um, which is not an easy task to do because it was a bit hit or miss in those days. They had uh, ASDIC, which was a, a sound sort of system that would find a submarine for you, but not very effectively. And But they got a few, and they did pretty well at it. But the, the big fight they had was with the bombing. They were bombed constantly by day and often by night, whether they're at sea or in harbour. And, and of course, the, if they're in harbour, they can't take evasive action. Exactly, exactly. They, um, they had to sort of fire back with whatever they had. Uh, the captains at sea, the captains grew very skilled at avoiding them, judging the exact moment when the bombs would be dropped and the exact moment to sort of turn left or right or whatever, port or starboard. Uh, and they were very good at it. And only one ship was lost to a, a bombing attack, uh, HMAS Waterhen, which, uh, which got and took a near miss. Even she wasn't hit, but the near miss was near enough to sort of bang a hole in her hull and she, she gradually gradually sank. But no man was injured, uh, except for one petty officer who was hit on the head by a can of flying peaches from the galley. But <laughs> <laughs> apart from that, they escaped unscathed. I'm very yep. taken with uh, Hector Waller, who was the scrap iron flotilla's commander. I like the fact that he turned out to be cleverer than Lord Louis Mountbatten. Tell us about him. He was uh, a country boy from uh, Benalla in Victoria. Um, just uh, and he joined the navy. God knows why, because he was uh, he was literally a country boy, and he enjoyed fishing in streams and things like that. And he was in uh, the second intake of naval cadets. We did we trained our officers a bit differently to the British. The Royal Navy chose its young officers from the ranks of the uh, the nobility. If you had a hyphen in your name, you were in. If you were the son of a duke, you were in. If you were the son of a bishop, you were in or an admiral. But we chose our, our boys on talent. And that early system produced a remarkably talented corps of, uh, of naval officers, and Waller was one of them. He was, uh, he was modest, he was brave, he was resolute, and he was well-loved by his crews. I, he was a great man, probably Australia's greatest fighting sailor, I think. He was something of a polymath, too, in, in, his, in the things he'd studied. Well, when they... They, I don't think they do it quite these days, but when they packed them off to become naval officers, cadet midshipmen, and these were kids of about, you know, 40 to 15 to start with, they taught them everything. They taught them German, they taught them Latin, they taught them, you know, all sorts of navigational bits and pieces and so on, geography, science. They had to do it, and, and they passed out pretty well educated. Would you now decode my reference to uh, Lord Louis? <laughs> they, uh, there was a... a a course called the Long Signals course, where you were taught in Britain how to be uh, a signalman, which was an extraordinary complex business. You had to know all the code flags and do Morse code, dip da dip and all that sort of stuff. It was a very, very hard course. And Waller went on the course and got top marks beating 
the uh, the previous holder of the Top Mark Award, uh, Lord Louis Mountbatten himself, which was a considerable achievement, particularly for an Australian upstart from the bush. Now, if, if I say Terrigal, many of the listeners will immediately think of uh, certain goings on with the Labor Party. But I want you, to, <laughs> I want you to tell me about the Battle of Terrigal. Well, this was this was in the opening. <laughs> this was in the opening weeks of the war. And there wasn't very much to do, but every, everyone was sort of a bit scared. Of oh, God, there'd be U-boats off the coast and uh, who knows what. And a couple of kids playing on the beach at Terrigal, just up north of Sydney, uh, were convinced they'd seen a submarine on the surface. So they told the police and the police told the Navy and uh, Waller and his ship HMAS Stewart were dispatched to the scene. And for a, a night and a day, they cruised up and down, firing off depth charges and keeping people awake at night with the explosions. And... Um, found nothing, nothing at all. Eventually, the next day or a day later, they sent up some Navy divers to have a look, and there was a large rock, a large rock shelf on the floor which had, of the sea, which had been mistaken. They'd mistaken for a submarine. It was known thereafter as the Battle of Terrigal. Now, they sailed north after a month of training. Tell me yeah. what happened. Well, they were, at first, the British were a bit duplicitous. Uh, you'd be surprised to hear this. At first, they were to go only to Singapore. Uh, and later they were said, well, could you please, could you perhaps send them further onto the Mediterranean? On the way, they, um, they were sort of dispatched to look for the, the German pocket battleship Graf Spey, which had been sinking merchant ships around Africa, East and West Africa. And they had a bit of a look for, for that, but didn't come across the thank heavens, because she could have blown them out of the water with no trouble whatsoever. But the British uh, then said, well, you're in Singapore, would you mind going to the Mediterranean? And we said, no, no of course we wouldn't, and off they went. Now, you describe living conditions as being atrocious, having changed little since Nelson's day. That's true. The, uh, the ships were riddled with, uh, infested with cockroaches and rats. They had to be regularly fumigated. And these, these would sort of scurry through the messes where the men ate and slept. Uh, there, were, there were the most primitive washing facilities. No showers, no baths. Uh, for the for the sailors, if they wanted to wash themselves, and you know, cleanliness is next to godliness in the navy, uh, they had to get a bucket of cold water, uh, squirt some steam into it from a steam pipe, and then slop it over them. And there was very little room for them to do this, so they're standing there, stark naked, cheek by jowl, sloshing buckets of water over themselves. The food was invariably foul because there was almost no refrigeration. So after you know a week or so at sea, they'd run out of fresh food, and they had to live on bully beef and, you know, tin this and that and so on. It was very, very primitive. But, Phil, this, this, was, a, this was a tough generation, you know. They, they grew up in the Depression. They knew what it was like to have a mother struggling to put food on the table, what it was like to have a father out of work, what it was like to go to school barefoot. So they didn't ask a lot. They put up with a lot and they gave a lot in return. This is Ellie uh, Nell on Radio National Downloaders. Don't depth charge us, but do download us whenever you, wherever you get your podcasts or listen on the ABC Listen app. And my guest is Mike Carlton, author of The Scrap Iron Flotilla. Now, the first few months in the Mediterranean, uh, I spent crisscrossing from France to Malta to Egypt, evading mines and enemy ships. And lo and behold, they get their first sub. Yeah, they... Um it's, uh, it was an Italian submarine. The first they sank were Italians. They eventually, uh, I don't know if they ever got a German one, but uh, the Italians had some, and they were actually very good at it. The Italian submarines spent a lot of time on the surface in the fresh air, which was quite silly. And um, they, could, they were fairly easily detected. And uh, they went over and, uh, and uh, over and over, and you had to sort of chug back and forth slowly trying to dop, drop your depth charges on top of a submarine. They had to land very close to a submarine to sink it. Uh, and eventually they did. A couple of Italian submarines were the first to go. Uh, it was a unique achievement. I understand that if you got it right, the submarine might submerge and then be seen to explode. They, it depends how you got it right, yeah. Uh, sometimes you could force them down to uh, below their design depth, in which case, in theory, they would be crushed like a, like a beer can. Uh, Italians built their submarines actually very well, and they could go well below their, their design depth and survive. But it must have been terrifying. And, and the book has got an account of, uh, of one Italian uh, on board a submarine 
what it was like to be uh, the subject of an attack, what it was like to be under attack. And it is utterly terrifying, the submarine rising and diving, rising and diving, the lights out, the air growing ever more foul and filthy because there was nothing left of it. Uh, terrifying stuff. That was a, a submarine sunk by HMAS Stewart, the Gondar, and it eventually came to the surface and most of the crew were, were rescued. Now, by December 4, 1940, the British have pushed Mussolini back. They've captured the... It famously captured 38,000 Italian POWs. And there they are retreating to Libya by the coastal road, leaving them vulnerable. Yeah. There's a, there's a wonderful quote from a, a British officer, actually, about the capture of Italian prisoners. I think he was only a lieutenant or a captain or something. And he was signalled by his headquarters, how many prisoners have you got? And he said, I think about two acres. <laughs> just one <of> the thing. <laughs> they, um, yeah, the, uh, the, the battle in North Africa seesawed back and forth, back and forth. The British uh, would, would gain a bit, then the Italians would come back at them and so on. Things changed when, uh, when Rommel arrived in uh, early 1941. And Rommel was a far better general than, than any of them. And he then gained the upper hand. But he could never take the, the fortress of Tobruk. Uh, that remained uh, holding out. Uh, and that was important because Tobruk uh, was uh, a vital, a strategic port in North Africa, in the Mediterranean. And through that, he should have been able to get supplies from the Italians. But they, the Australians in there, the Australian soldiers in there held out and held out. And they were supplied, sustained by the scrap iron flotilla. Under the command of... Waller was basically, uh, I think his title was uh, commanding officer inshore squadron or something rather, you know, official like that. It wasn't just the scrap iron. Other ships did it as well. I mean, they had to send in tankers and all sorts of things. But the scrap iron flotilla ships went back and forth, back and forth, bombed every time they did it, every time. The Germans knew when they were coming and were there to meet them. Now... On one of these uh, runs, HMAS Waterhen was uh, sunk by an Italian dive bomber. Yeah, that, um, that's uh, the only one of the scrap iron flotillas that was lost to enemy action in the Mediterranean. The, the other, Stuart escaped unscathed, Voyager escaped unscathed, Vampire and Vendetta all escaped unscathed. They were remarkably lucky that very, very few people were killed. Um, Waterhen sadly, was, uh, had, to be, had to be let go. They tried to tow her to safety. A British destroyer tried to tow her back to, back to port. Didn't work. She just took on too much water. But the British destroyer nudged alongside and the crew of Waterhen stepped aboard as if they were, just as if they were catching a, a Sydney Harbour ferry, complete with a dog. <laughs> okay. Now, the, uh, the scrap iron flotilla was involved in the battle of Matapan, which you'd say was the last great fleet action between battleships that the world would ever see. Well, battleships, yes, had been fighting it out for about 300 years, first wooden sailing battleships and then finally the, the steel ones. And the Battle of Matapan was the Royal Navy's last great fleet action. Uh, Italian battleship and, uh, and British battleships. It was off the, uh, the southern coast of Greece. Matapan is the sort of southernmost point of mainland, of metropolitan, of you know, European Greece. And um, it, was, it was a remarkable thing because the British knew where the Italians were, had a pretty good idea where they were. Because was they that because managed, of Bletchley Park? Absolutely. They had managed, a very clever young woman, I think she was only about 19 years old, had managed to crack the Italian code and they worked out that this uh, Italian fleet would be at sea. And so the British, and that includes a couple of the Australians, were, were there to find them and hunt them down. And it was a remarkable, remarkable battle. I Three understand years. that the Italians had, were disadvantaged because they had no radar. They didn't have radar, and uh, the, the other great disadvantage they had was they had almost no air cover. Uh, because there was a, a huge and damaging turf war between the Italian Navy and the Italian Air Force. They were barely on speaking terms for some reason. And, if, and they, should have, they should have had uh, the skies swarming with Italian aircraft attacking the British, but they didn't. That was a, a huge, a huge mistake in, in Italian strategy. 
Talking about mistakes and strategy, Churchill would insist that the British and Australians occupy Greece against the advice of uh, senior commanders. Once again, the, the, our flotilla has a role to play. Yeah. Ch- Churchill's sort of post-war reputation as a saviour of Europe uh, overshadows the fact that as a strategist, he was appallingly bad, as, as we all saw at Gallipoli in uh, 1915, and many times through the Second World War as well. Uh, his, sometimes his, arm, his generals and admirals would try and dissuade him. But it was insanity to, uh, to invade Greece. Uh, the Germans had dozens of divisions ready to roll into, into Greece. They were, they were well-equipped, well-armed, and, and competently led. Uh, Churchill decided it had to be done for political reasons to show the world that Britain had resolve and would, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And so they plucked the Australians and the New Zealanders mainly. So there were some British involved. It was mostly Australians and New Zealanders. They were the majority of them. They plucked them from North Africa, where we were winning the war there very, very well, and sent them to, to, to Greece, where, uh, where they, lost, they lost the battle. They hadn't, you know, there's no way they could possibly have won it. In fact, the Navy, when it took them in there, and the Navy ships took them into Greece, was already planning how to get them out again, at that, even as they went in. Uh, it was more than a debacle. It was a tragedy. I think the nearly 10,000 Australians were captured and taken prisoner. And the Navy, the Navy had to pull them out of Greece and then a few weeks later to pull them out of the island of Crete as well. It was a disaster. Two final questions. What became of Hector Waller? Waller was, uh, after the, the Scrap Iron Flotilla, he became the captain of the, the cruiser HMAS Perth and uh, was lost in her in uh, 1942 in the Sunda Strait between Java and Sumatra when they were attacked by uh, an overwhelming force of uh, a Japanese force. And he was last seen standing on the bridge of his ship looking down at the silent guns below him, and that was it. He was, uh, that was the, the 1st of March 1942. And what became of the, uh, of the s- scrap iron flotilla, Mike? The ships themselves, uh, it's a sad story. Vampire was sunk by the Japanese in the Indian Ocean. Voyager uh, ran aground in Timor, and once she was trying to land a party of commandos, and bits of her can still be seen at uh, low tide. Vendetta and Stewart survived the war. Uh, Vendetta, Orham was lost, as we said. Vendetta came back, had to be towed back to Australia because uh, she'd been stripped of everything in Singapore for a refit when the Japanese arrived. He had to be towed back. And Stuart rather sadly ended her days as a, as a transport with most of her, you know, her, her sharp teeth withdrawn, just one gun, chuntering back and forth between Sydney and New Guinea and was eventually scrapped after lying for a while in the mud of the Parramatta River. You've been listening to the admirable and indeed admirable Mike Carlton, <laughs> author, author of The Scrap Iron Flotilla, published by Penguin Random House. Thanks, Mike. Good on you. Mate, thank you. That's very kind of you. And that, you lot, is your lot. On our next, we're having a chat with one, two, three artists about the power of art to affect change. It's a special discussion for ABC Arts Week. And my old mate Bodge, Barry Owen-Jones, will be back to uh, talk about his long battle against capital punishment. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.